morning I want to uh, talk about something that I think um, every church uh, should have to uh, look at occasionally, and um, I think as not only as a church corporately, but as individuals, um, the topic today um, is really beneficial for us to at some point just have, have a hard reset you know, um, how sometimes you have to do that to your technology. You're just like, this thing needs to just reset. Uh, same thing with us sometimes spiritually. And so I hope that this morning uh, we can do that with, with this. And um, I want to uh, start by giving you um, a little bit of background on, on, a, on a story. And this would have been about the mid-90s. There was a, um, my sister and her husband were youth pastors in Paris, Arkansas. And uh, in between there is like mid Midway and there's Subiaco. And at Subiaco, there's um, a Benedictine monastery that has been there since the 1800s. It is an academy. And so uh, students go there and live on site. And there's approximately 40 Benedictine monks that live there. And... Um, so I'd always kind of just driven by it and seen it from, from the road and thought, man, that's, you know, it looks spectacular. I'd just like to go there sometime and check it out. And I had a small group of people with me, and we were on our way back, and I just decided, let's put the blinker on and turn in here and see if there's somebody here who can lead us around. And so, um, lo and behold, there's this guy who comes up, and he says, hey, I'll, I'll be glad to walk you through everything. I can give you the quick tour. And so we all just kind of started following him, and I was kind of the first in line on the tour, and so I'm interacting with him and talking to him about, hey, how, how did you get here? What's your story, if you don't mind me asking what's going on? And basically, the quick version of that is this guy um, who was showing us around, and at this point, this again, mid-90s, but he was uh, very thin and frail and was using a cane to walk around, and, and, um, but he was telling us, he said, um, well, I was, I was in love with this girl, that's how it all starts, and I was in love with this girl, and I asked her to marry me, and she said no. And um, he said, so I um, ended up going into World War II, and while I was gone, I was hoping that a couple things. Number one, I would survive the war. Number two, that in my absence, she would gain some affection for me. And he said, so I survived the war, and I came back, and I found her, and she had married somebody else. And I said to myself, if I can't have her, I don't want anybody, and I became a monk. Now, guys, listen, I don't recommend <laughs> this to anybody, but that's the truth. He decided if I can't marry her, I'm not going to marry anybody, and I was like, does she know this? You know? And I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, I fix typewriters. That's all I do. I just uh, I fix typewriters, and of course, you know, by this time, you know, half of the world had laptops, and I was thinking, this is eventually going to end for you, you know, the typewriter career. Um, but he led us around and was showing us different things. And, you know, keep in mind that this thing had been in Subiaco, Arkansas, in, since the late 1800s. So imagine the landscape in Subiaco in 1800s. And here we were in the mid-90s, and he took us into this sanctuary, is what I'm going to call it. I've probably got the language wrong, but he took us into this place of worship, and the acoustics, you know, were just amazing. It was like a whisper could be heard all the way across the room. And um, you could tell the European influence, just there was a lot of ornate furniture. It was very dark. 
Um, and, uh, but there was, a, if, if you've been, you know exactly where I'm going. In the middle of the sanctuary, there's this enormous 24 karat gold statue of Christ on the cross. And he was telling us that over the years, many times, this thing has been stolen. And you know, my, my curiosity is like, you know, you get up, you find your way to the very top, and you, you know, snap the cables on this thing, you get it in the bed of the truck. What, is, what does the pawn shop really say when you, you know, come in with a 24 karat gold Jesus? But they, they brought it back all three times that it was stolen. But the point I'm wanting to make is there was this, there was this point at some, at some point of this tour standing in the sanctuary where it was like the, the environment and the story and the, the Jesus and uh, the acoustics and everything brought me to this very just sacred moment. You had, and I'm not being funny here, you had a few monks walking around and it, it just it sealed the, the whole deal. You just, you just kind of wanted to bow your head like this was a very distinct place on the campus um, for these groups of people. And I wanted to respect that. And I remember just kind of wanting to really hunker down and, and bow my head and, and give it some sacredness. And it's this sacredness that I really want to talk about because the truth is we lose awe in a lot of things, okay? And so just like me walking in on this campus of this monastery brought me to this point of going, wow, this is certainly different than anything else I've seen this morning. Um, a lot of times in our lives, we do the same things. We lose the awe that we should have in the creator, in his creation. We lose the awe of our friendships, the fact that we would actually live life with people and share in wins and in losses should create some awe for us. That there are people around us championing us on in this journey. We lose all of our spouse. You remember when you and your spouse first started dating, you would be on, on, on the phone and you'd be like, no, you hang up. No, you. No, no, I'm, no you. I'm serious. No, okay, I'm putting the phone down. No, you. No, you. No, you. And that went on for, you know, what seemed to be an eternity till finally somebody hung up. Now, after 20 years, you just want a text message. And you want to be really short, like, what's for dinner? And then you want a short answer. You know, spaghetti, great. We just had a great conversation. We, we, lose, we lose the awe of that person that we've made vow with, that we're raising children with, that we got futuristic plans with, we lose the awe because somehow in all of that, it, it becomes very common ground to us. And so this is not something new. It's actually been a challenge for every single generation, no matter which history you're pulling from, whether it's the Bible or whether it's from a sociology course, you're going to find that people lose splendor. And so as we get into these things and we get into life and our, you know, our point specifically this morning is, you know, as we talk about the worship of God and why, why we do this and why we're still on this journey and why are we believing anyway and why have I decided to be a disciple and why do I have certain principles and beliefs that I'm going to live by that maybe not everybody else in the world is going to live by? Why am I choosing to do those things? 
I know as pastors and lay pastors, and we have a, an incredible lead team here that, that leads groups of serve teams that, that do an incredible job here at our campus, and sometimes it's like we can be moving at 200 miles per hour. You know, I always quote this because I thought it was so good an imagery, but Pastor Rick always says, our churches are like building a plane while it's in flight. You know, it's just this constant hair on fire feeling. And if you're not careful, you realize that you're doing a bunch of stuff and you no longer remember why you're doing it because it's lost its awe. It's lost its splendor. It no longer captures you, okay? Bill Hybels made, made this quote several years ago. I love it. It's always stuck with me. This is what he said. Is the way you're doing the work of God destroying the work of God in you? He said, is, is basically the pace and the cadence and the way that you're serving and, and loving and doing and, and, and worshiping and you're doing all these things, but is the pace at which you're doing it destroying the work of God in you? And he's basically like, like this. This is how I hear it, especially this morning, is don't let what you're doing be the point of awe for you. Let it be who you're doing it for be the point of awe for you, okay? And so today I want to talk about how can we find awe in God? How can we keep him at the forefront of our minds and the center of all that, that we do? And I want to begin this by taking you to Ezekiel chapter 44. And about 18 months to two years ago, I used this verse uh, to speak to you about, about commonality. And this week I got to writing an essay out and it kind of all just came back. So this is kind of like a part two to that, that thought that I had two years ago. But I want to go to Ezekiel 44 and read verse 23, okay? Let's look at it together. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy, okay, or the sacred, the set apart, the unique, and the common, so the author here is telling us there are going to be some things in your life that, that are going to have to be unique, and they're going to be set apart, and they're going to be, and they're going to be separate. They're going to be holy, and you have to recognize them as such. But then there's going to be some other things that are very common to you, and you're welcome to recognize those things as common. But there has to be a point. There has to be some, some intellectual decision-making here about what's holy and what's not holy. And so he's trying to, to teach that you just can't walk up into holiness and treat it as common, okay? And so I want to start this conversation by finding some level ground with some familiar biblical figures that we all know and appreciate and value. But for time's sake, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I am going to build them just a little bit so that we can put this message on top of it, okay? Let's start off with, with Samson. Um, incredible guy, incredible giftedness. Um, had a lot of faith problems um, and went back and forth constantly. And, but a beautiful story of redemption, grace, mercy, second chance, all that is tied into this story. But we see this big old gift. I mean, just strength. And what it brought to this particular era of, of time was amazing. So we're talking about a guy who could defeat 
Hundreds of people with animal bones. We're talking about a guy that could not only catch foxes, but tied them together, setting them on fire, and then had a strategy for them. Uh, he picked up the gates of a city and walked off with them. I, I mean, he, he did some amazing things. But what happened is suddenly he lost sight of the source of his gift. And, and now being strong had nothing to do with God. It was just who he was. And we find him in, in the great, this apex of his story. He says, I'm just going to jump up and do what I've always done because the strength has always been a part of my life. And scripture even tells us he didn't even know it was gone. Just really sad. So he gets up doing what he's always done and he's weak and doesn't even know it yet. Somehow that big old gift and anointing on his life was just something plain. The children of Israel, okay? I have a love-hate relationship with these guys um, because sometimes I see them and I'm jealous of them. I'm like, man, some of the Old Testament stuff that we've seen God do to the children of Israel, amazing. And then you see them, pardon, but you see them act just like idiots and, and you want to see them just get mama slapped. Okay, anybody ever seen, ever seen a mama slap a kid? I got slapped once by my mom. He's like, I didn't even see it coming. I was like, whoa. It was like a, a ninja just came out of nowhere and slapped me. That's how I want to do them sometimes. You're looking at, I want you to think about this. It's going to be very hard because of our culture and the time in which we live. But I want you to think about this. Food is falling from the sky. All right? At night, there's this cloud of fire that sits down on them. You're talking millions of people. This is not like a little campfire. A cloud of fire to warm them, to separate them, to show them God is with them, to give them direction. I mean, nothing short of the hand of God is on them. And what do they do? You know, God, I'm really tired of bread. You know what I want? I want some bird. That's what I want. I want just, what is that? Is that me? Okay. Sorry, I'm trying. I just, I just want a change. And so God adheres to it. Okay, fine. You want, you want some bird? I'm going to give you some bird. And so he sends it. And so the children of Israel are complaining and grumbling and upset and suddenly this becomes common. If one of you will just bring me my handheld, I don't want this to do this, the whole message, okay? Third, King Saul. Okay, now keep, keep in mind that Saul and the priest work hand in hand. King and priest work hand in hand, okay? And so they have a lot of leverage between the, the two of them. They have a lot of fans. They have, they're very popular. And so the king had his role. And the priest had his role. And so at some point, Saul has watched Samuel do all these sacrifices. And so at some point, Saul looks and goes, you know what? I can do this. I, I, don't, I don't need Samuel. I can, I can see what's happening here. And I don't need to have him come and bless this and offer the sacrifice. I mean, I've seen this done so many times that I don't, I don't even need, need to, to have it done. And so he decides to put his hand on it. And he sacrifices, 
and does what the priest should have done. Again, something that was holy and sacred and worshipful and sacrificial and had principle behind it became something so simple to Saul that he said, you know what? I can do this myself. David. David had been elevated from a rancher's son all the way to the most popular king. They had sung about him in the streets. I'm going to take that. Sorry, guys. Check one. There we go. Okay. They had sung about him in the streets. But his days of slaying giants were gone when he decided, I have a mastermind plan. I've seen a lady that I want, and I'm going to make this happen. I'm the king, and I'm going to kill somebody over it, and I'm going to take her. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to cover up this, this child. And suddenly this guy who had been anointed as a warrior and as, as a king was now moving people around like chess pieces trying to make things happen. This, this guy who had once stood in awe of God was now falling apart. Mark chapter 6, the people of Nazareth. When you look at this story in its context, this is basically what happens. They cannot get past the fact that Jesus is just Mary's son and Joseph's boy. They can't get past it. And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically they have looked on him and said, hang on a minute, I know you. Don't, don't come in here acting like you're the savior of the world because you added on to my garage. I was there. I've seen you with a hammer in your hand. And you're, you're Joseph's boy. I mean, the savior of the world, that's kind of exaggerated, right? Ironically, that geographical place of Nazareth, because they could not get past it, saw very few miracles. They tied his hands. They weren't moving him with faith. And so he was not even able to do much among the people that he grew up around because they couldn't get past it. They just saw him as common, simple. They weren't in awe of him. They were not awestruck by his story. Today, we check our kids in church. It's very ordinary. We get an ordinary cup of coffee. We find an ordinary seat. We shake what we think are ordinary hands. We sing what we think are ordinary songs. And we see people get saved and baptized and we lose our awe of all of it. When we we're at the carpet store. There was a season there before we moved over here. We were doing three services. I don't know if you guys remember that. How many of you were there for three services? Okay. We did uh, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And I'm going to be very honest with you. That 11.30, by the time you get to it, you I'd never said this out loud, but it would be like, do we have to do the 11.30? Like, I mean, we just... We just had two, because by that time your mind's playing tricks on you. You know, you're, you're speaking, 
but you feel like you've already said that, like just a few minutes ago. So you're on you're on on your third time, but you're saying it, and your mind's going, "Hey, you already said that. Hey, you already said that. Hey, you already said that." I mean, we would stand. I mean, worship team would do great, and we'd give it our best shot. And but it was like it was so arduous. It was so taxing on you mentally and physically that many times you made it to the eleven thirty, and you were like, "It's going to take the strength of God to get me through this." What happened is we lost the awe of it. We lost the awe of the opportunity that was given to us to share with 250, 350 adults at the 1130 service. Suddenly it just became like, oh, this is became more about us and our the physical. And man, it's just it's exhausting. We lost all of it. It happens like that. How can we resist this temptation in our lives? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55. I want to just remind us of this for just a moment. I'm going to hop in. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than than your thoughts. And we should all be reminded today that no matter how scientific and techy that we get, and I love both of those fields, I've always believed that science is God's language to us. He's revealing himself to us as we discover the world around us. But as much now as we're able to take big ideas and move them to very small and manageable thoughts, don't, don't forget that we're never, ever, ever going to be able to do that with God. That you can't take his existence and his, his thoughts and his ways and, and put them under a microscope. We, we can't do it. So the first thing I want to talk about is this. God has to be known, not just experienced. God has to be known, not just experienced. When I, when I was growing up, we had things in our church that that became very sacred. And we we had first of all we we had what was called revivals because that's what churches did. And if you've never heard that phrase before that was basically a a three night maybe Sunday through Wednesday and if you were really cooking you'd go a whole week and sometimes they would they would extend them on. And revivals were great, they served a purpose, people were being fed, people were being blessed. But what we got into was we started creating experiences. And then, and then we surrounded our experiences with, with sacred things, okay? So again, and I'm being very respectful. I don't want you to leave with your feelings hurt this morning. I'm speaking to every one of our, our histories today. And so we, we had at our church, we had this big table down front, and we had, we'd put communion on it, and we'd cover up the communion. And it had a little chiseled phrase in the front written in an old English font that said, this do in remembrance of me. And that thing became sacred. Like you didn't put your car keys on it. You, you, didn't, you would not dare bring a cup of coffee in there. I mean, like we would be pagans in 1985. And so we had this table and like you, you didn't touch it really. You didn't get near it. It was sacred. And then we had these big long benches that were altars. And people would come and kneel at them and pray with them, and we'd have Kleenex boxes under them, and, and we had all these things, and, and it, it was great. They served a purpose. But what happened along the way is somehow these tables and these benches became things that, that were more 
surrounding the experience and they became more sacred than the actual one we were worshiping. Like these things and these experiences became God rather than giving us the vehicle by which we sought him. Does that make sense? Suddenly these things, we we begin to elevate. Don't touch that. Don't do that. And suddenly we were surrounded by things. Okay? And I've told you this many times, but I'm trying to drive drive home a a point. I remember them passing. Do you remember the old offering plates? And they were about this big, and they had a velvet center, I think, just to keep change from, I don't know. But they would pass it, and as children, they would make us spit our gum out in it. And so, yeah, think about 100 people later. I was just... You know, I was like, why, why can't I have gum? You know, like, what am I going to do with it? You know, and, and so suddenly it was, just, it was just all this sacred stuff like, like you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that and you can't do that and you can't do that. And finally what my whole generation did was say, I'm out. Because, like, there's so many hoops going on. I can't spin all these plates. I'm out. And they got out. And the point I'm trying to make is we would build up this need for experiences because we thought if we could create enough experiences, then we could graduate to a new place in God. So we created Sunday school and then Sunday morning worship and then Sunday night worship and then Tuesday night Bible study or Tuesday night prayer and then Wednesday night Bible study and then everybody went into a three-day depression from Thursday, Friday, and Saturday until we could get something going again on Sunday. Come on, somebody. All right, now, now you're there. Okay. So we, we surrounded ourselves with experiences. If I can just go and do something, then I'm, I'm, I'm getting in with God. But my assessment of experience addiction is this. When in the absence of sovereignty, like in the absence of awe, people will follow hype. And what, what happened is you created an entire generation. I don't mean you, I mean like we, the church, capital C, created an entire generation of, of, of people, of pastors, of leaders who fell into this trap of, crea- of, of this experiential learning with God. And I'm all about an experience with God, but I want to balance it. So what happened is all these guys got out of out of seminary and whatnot, and they could not come up with any solid theology, but they could hype you up. So we had cheerleaders. So we'd come in and, come on, I know you want to worship God, I know you want to worship God, I know you want to worship God, come in, and we'd, and we'd chum the water. And everybody was rah, 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 you know this, come on, come on church, come on, come on church, you can do it. And it was like this rah, rah moment. Why? Because the whole church was no longer in awe of God. People had to be convinced to worship and serve and give and be Christians. And they had to get a rah, rah moment. They had to get a fix. Because they had lost the awe. I don't know if you remember this conversation taking place in Matthew chapter 7. It's amazing. And I think a lot of times in our preaching, we whip right over it because it's so deep that if we really explored it, we'd probably have to turn it into a series. 
But in Matthew chapter 7, watch, watch what's happening. This is, this is an amazing, amazing scripture. Verse 22, many will say, but Lord, we did many good works. Okay, watch. Experiences, right? I'm, I'm giving out experiences. In your name. Lord, we were healing people, casting out devils, raising folks from the dead, all this amazing stuff. We did that. We did that like people had an experience with you. And watch how he re- re- rebukes them here. But I will say to them, I never knew you. Like, like your experience was way over there. And my name and my, my word can stand alone. So that's why stuff was happening. But me, I was over here. You weren't in awe with me. You were in awe of the stuff, the experience, the goosebumps, the rah-rah. And you lost awe of me. See, watch this. This is strong, okay? Don't, don't, don't let this get by you. If God is only an experience, then our knowing God is limited by the people creating them. If, if us knowing God is about our experience, guess who lands with all that, that, that pressure? This guy. Because then I become responsible for giving you the experience. Our worship team becomes responsible. David's back there trying to channel David Lee, Lee Roth. You know, he's like, oh, oh I got I to gotta do something impressive. I got to give these guys an experience. Because that's how it is. If all we're chasing is an experience, then we are heavily depending on those providing it to reveal God to us. When the truth is, if we'll just capture awe of him again, it makes all the difference in the world. Let me move on for time's sake. Number two, you cannot build a doctrine around a personal event. You cannot build a doctrine around a personal event. You know why it's so easy to view God as, as simple, for us to lose all of him? Because we are filtering him through our own experiences, and we're on this side of heaven, and on this side of heaven, everything is broken. So as we filter God through our own experiences, it's very easy for us to go, God is common, God is not sacred, God is not set apart, God is not unique, because my experience are not set apart, and they're not unique. And so we begin to look at God as being something that we can just carry around in our, in our, in our pocket. I've shared with you many times our story, and I've listened to many of your stories, and I'm thankful for that, and Last Saturday, I had the privilege of being with a family who had just lost an infant. And as you can imagine, it was cold, and it was windy, and it was very sad. And it was very heavy, lots of question marks, lots of wondering what's going on. And I want to remind you that it's in these moments, the enemy does not come in and slap you across the face. He doesn't come in like a linebacker and tackle you to the ground. No, the situation has already done done that. 
in these circumstances where things are heavy, where we're around grave sites, where we just heard a doctor's report that takes our breath away, the enemy comes in and it's just, it's a whisper. It's just a little faint whisper. And this whisper says something to this effect. God is ordinary. And if, if you're not careful, that seed falls to the ground in your heart and begins to develop a root system that hits every nerve of every experience you've ever gone through. When you read in Genesis chapter 3 about the fall of man, you know what the enemy told Adam? He said, listen, if you'll eat of this, you'll be like God. The, the twisting of that verse by Satan was this. If you're like God, then he's like you. And so if you can't do anything about the circumstance, neither can he. And we lose all of God because we're living in a broken, chaotic, fast-paced world where presently God is choosing not to put pillars of fire across the sky. Man is not falling from heaven. I mean, we are living by faith. But if you're not careful, you filter God through the lens of your personal experience. And like cancer, it eats away at your faith. And suddenly you find yourself, and there's no magic moment or time frame. It's just one day, it's just gone. And suddenly it's like you're fully depleted. Third, growing up with God does not mean we outgrow God. Growing up with God does not mean we outgrow God. You can't talk about losing all without talking about 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's this amazing story there. For 30 years, the Ark of the Covenant has been sitting in the house of Abinadab. And he's got two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. What's bizarre about this story is Abinadab's house is seven miles from Jerusalem. So for 30 years, the greatest piece of biblical archaeology is sitting seven miles from David's house. David becomes king, and he decides, I'm going to shake things up a little bit, and he says, let's go get it. Let's go down there. Listen, I'm going to throw a party. We're going to get every, every gifted person in this area. Let's put a band together. Let's go down there and get them. And they do. And what happens next is one of the most strange circumstances to ever unfold. Since Abinadab is a priest, thus his son Ahio are priests, they become responsible for the transportation of the ark of God. Okay, Now keep in mind, if there ever was something that said holy, set apart, sacred, unique, it's this. In it are incredible items about God's principle and God's provision and God's power all in that box. So, Uzzah and Ohio are like, okay, hey, okay, th this is what, it's, it's, it's like this happened in one of our own neighborhoods, okay? Imagine this with me. He's like, hey, back it up. 
Yeah, come on. A little bit more. A little bit more. Whoop, whoop, that's it. A little bit more. That's it. That's it. They choose for the first time in history to transport the ark using a cart and oxen. They're priests. They know. How do you do it? You use four priests and acacia poles. That's it. It's got to be carried on the weight of the priest. You carry it. Maybe they're, they're lazy. Maybe they're like, hey, Dad, you know, this is seven miles. I mean, I, I don't want to walk seven miles of this thing. Whatever the reasons, we don't know. But they decided to do it th- this way. So they loaded up, and David starts the grand march. The party's going, and they're moving, and suddenly the oxen are going, and they stumble, and the cart shifts its weight, and the, 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 the ark kind of starts to get unsteady, and Uzzah reaches out and puts his hand on it and dies. Everybody is taken aback. As a matter of fact, David's like, listen, let's put that out of the house of Obed-Edom. Let's all go home. i got to think about what happened. He's like, God, what just, these people think I killed somebody. What in the world is going on? I'm going to tell you what it came, what it came down to. And this could be the, the biggest problem of all. For Uzzah and Ahio, the ark of God was something that was just in their house. To, to them, it was no different than the couch in the living room. It just lost all. So they said, sure, I mean, it's been 30 years. Let's just back a cart up, throw it on the cart, and oxen will do the work for us. I mean, we're, we're advanced technology. It's been 30 years, Dad. Nobody does acacia poles anymore. Do we even have the acacia poles? Uzzah lost touch with it. Okay, now we're not far removed from this because for those of us who grew up in church, and we grew around the stuff, and we grew up around the altars, and we grew up around the communion tables, and we grew up singing songs, and grew up here and preaching, and we grew up going to church, and we grew up teaching, and our daddies drove buses and picked up kids, and our mamas taught taught stuff, and, and we were the ones that came up and re-roofed something and fixed the plumbing and did all that stuff. A lot of your families, that is your story. You did that. And if you're not careful, your relationship to God becomes just as plain as the ark was in the house of Abinadab. And it becomes just like the couch in the, in, in the living room. We lose all. So here's where, where we find ourselves doing all the stuff. And this is going to sound real ugly, okay? I'm just going to put this out here. It's going to sound ugly, but hear me. It's possible that somebody here today came 52 weekends in a row. Last, last year, you didn't miss a single weekend, but you didn't worship once. It's possible. You came every single Sunday, and sadly, you didn't even worship. And I'm not trying to make you Pentecostal charismatics. For me, raising my hand is normal. I love it. It's my expression to God. I'm a hand raiser. But you got to worship in the way that that moves you toward God. And I'll be honest, I love having coffee. I love having wild sweet weeds. I love, but there has to be a thing like in Ezekiel when he says, hey, we're now moving from the common to the uncommon, and we got to put stuff down, 
and get focused, and it's irritating. I'm going to let you in. David would never tell me this in 100 years, but I was a worship pastor, and I can tell you this. It is irritating when you're up here trying to lead people into the presence of God and somebody's sucking down some West Rock. It's t- you you got to put that stuff down and say, God, I'm, this is my time with you. I'm going to worship. I'm not going to lose all of you. But I'm going to lift up the name of Jesus. I am going to worship you. I'm going to declare the goodness of God in this place. Don't let us be a church that creates sacredness out of stuff that is nothing. This whole place, and I say this respectfully because we've given a lot of money to this property, it could burn to the ground tomorrow. It wouldn't change the way I feel about our church. Why? Because you are the church. I just found another place. Nothing in here means a thing to me. You are what's sacred. Our relationship with God is what we're in awe of. Never a property or stuff or a bench or a table or anything I could stack on the table. Got to be in awe of Him. Right? All right, let's bow our heads. I'm out of time. I want to go on, but I can't.